you want to open up, we're going to, this is the words you've been waiting for for a long time, we're going to finish the book of 1 Corinthians. It's just about, you know, nine months or so, that's okay. Uh, I trust and I hope that as we've been going through 1 Corinthians and as you've been reading along and, and listening and being challenged, uh, I hope your faith has grown. I hope your knowledge of who God is um, has, has deepened and that as we discuss these final thoughts together, um, that w- this wouldn't be something we just have gone through and forget, but it's something that we would retain, something that we would hold on to and that we would... Uh, care deeply about. We've dealt with issues of unity within the church, uh, issues of sexual purity, issues of idolatry, uh, the corporate gathering, love, and the resurrection. And today as Paul finishes, this is, this is kind of a unique finishing to one of his letters because typically there's a very uh, kind of pattern way that he writes, but here it seems like he's about to end at, the, at verse 11 And then he gets into a little bit more, and then he gets into a little bit more. And so we're going to jump around and look at a couple of highlights of some things that he says to us as we finish. Let's just read uh, this together, and then then we'll, we'll deal with a few of these things. So starting at 16, verse 1, Paul writes this. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, so, pardon me, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you you with with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has the opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunus and Achaeus because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. 
All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So as Paul begins... um, as Paul begins writing this last chapter, he has this now concerning. And this is the same as we've looked at several times throughout. And so I just want to remind you, in case you've forgotten or perhaps you're visiting or or haven't been able to catch much of this series, is a letter went to Paul on behalf of the church in Corinth. And in it, there were several questions, several things that were being asked and wanted clarification on. And throughout the letter, Paul deals with a few of those things to kind of correct and to show them the correct way to do things. And this is one of those. The collection of the saints. How, how should this collection be taken up? Uh, is there a procedure that they should follow? Um, d- did this collection look like our own offering in our worship services? And was it taken during the corporate gathering? These are some of the questions that scholars kind of have asked as they're looking for what Paul uh, wants to correct and wants to show them. Well, we see that in verse 2, Paul says that this happens on the first day of the week. And so what all commentators agree on here is that at the beginning in the early church movement, they, they started meeting on what day? On Sundays in the early church. The Jewish group had met on the Sabbath on Saturday for you know, the, the history of the Old Testament, but all of a sudden there was something new that happened. They would meet on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. Why would they do that? Because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so 2,000 years later, we still have this same mentality. We, that's why we meet on Sundays, and that's why often you hear Sundays referred to as the Lord's Day. It's meant so that we focus ourselves back to the resurrection of Jesus, that we have hope after death. That nothing can take us away from Jesus. And so the early church gathered together to proclaim Jesus has risen. And praise the Lord for that. But this collection, what what exactly did this look like? Was it similar to our offering that we take up kind of in the modern church? Well, yes and no. So in this case, and you see this actually in uh, the book of Acts, you see this in Galatians, a few of the other letters reference this as well, is there was this, this idea that for the church to remain a part of one corporate body rather than individual little churches. And remember that back then in this time, sorry, my mic is being really funny today. Back in this time, most churches were smaller groups of people that met in homes and occasionally would gather together in bigger groups. But what the idea behind this is, is so that you would step out of your own context and into the broader scheme of the world church. And how important for us is that as well? That we would remind ourselves of what's going on. And so Paul and and some of the other apostles, they focused very specifically on whatever needs existed within the body of Christ that each church would make collections so that that could be sent off to help those who had need. Now, church history reads that in Jerusalem, there were several times that there was uh, unique circumstances, whether it was through famine, persecution, or, or other issues that we're unaware of. But there were people in Jerusalem, saints of the Lord Jesus, that were really struggling. 
And so Paul says, just like, just like I told the church in Galatians, we have that in, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul talks about that. But just like there is, you're supposed to, when you gather together, when you come together to worship, when you come to proclaim Jesus, that you would also take an offering to help out those of your brothers and sisters who are in need. And that's a reminder that we all need to have often. And so I want to tell you something that our church does. Because while most of our offerings on Sunday mornings are more general speaking, they're not to a specific fund necessarily, is what we of the church have decided, uh, and this, this way predates me, this is something that the church has done for many years, is that 10% of whatever comes in goes immediately to our missionary fund. And that doesn't just mean to those individual missionaries, but to the idea of missions, to the world outside of our own little building here. And that's our way of kind of being biblical in this sense and looking and recognizing that there are needs outside of our church. Certainly there are needs within. And we want to make sure we meet those needs. But not at the cost of what's going on in our community or, or further into the world. And so that's why there will be times where we do take up offerings for specific things. Uh, we took up an offering for Teen Challenge not too, too long ago where we brought someone in and they shared what that ministry did and we said, look, we as a church, we want to see how we can help in this. We see a need and we want to respond. Just like with the uh, missionary offering, and we just want to clarify just a little bit here, is, is that gift that gets given at Christmas that we send off to our missionaries. We're simply saying is these people are serving the Lord every day and if you've been in ministry, especially in some kind of a missional sense, is there's not a lot of monetary availability to them. They're raising support and they're scraping by to try and have enough so that they can function in that way. And that's one, this offering is one way for us to gather together and say, look, we just want to bless them. You know, some of them have children that maybe that buying Christmas gifts for is, is some, almost a luxury that they can't afford where many of us, we don't even think about that. It's just Christmas and this is what we do. And so it's a way for us to step out from our immediate context and go, how can we bless those who are serving in many different ways? And so that's why we do that every Christmas. That's one example of what we're trying to do as a church to step out and to look beyond ourselves. I would encourage each of you to get into some kind of a, a normal pattern of looking up the website, The Voice of the Martyrs. Is anybody familiar with The Voice of the Martyrs? So that is a group where they deal with the persecuted church, and it's people who are in uh, contexts, countries, where they are not only persecuted for their faith, but often can be killed. And, and so names are changed to protect identities, but they send out an update saying, here's what's happening in the church in this community, in this community. Here's stories from these individuals, though their names are changed, with what's happening. And if you can get into a regular habit of that, what that will do is that will give us perspective and our problems won't seem so big and we'll start to recognize that there's many in the world who are suffering in many ways. And that will unite us together as a church as we pray for one another and we remember. I don't know about you, but for me, it's very easy to get sucked into my own little world and focus only on my issues, my problems, the things that are on my mind. And I need that broader perspective. I need to be reminded. And that's what Paul's saying here. When you come together, collect these things so that we can help other saints who are in need.
And then he just says a practical thing, right? And, and notice, I think this is important. When I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Paul is trying to distance himself from this. He's not trying to say, give a collection and then trust me and I'll take care of it. He, he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to put any kind of possibility of accusation coming against him. Paul, what did you do with those funds? Did you keep some for yourself? Did you give them all away? He's saying, no, take men and women, people in your context, in your congregation who are trustworthy and send it. And if you think that I should go along with them, then I will do that. There's another thing that we've done in our church based on a text like this is we don't let any one single person handle money in the church ever. What you see is as the offering gets collected and as people go up to count and deposit and take the, the information that they need, there's always more than one person who does it. We never want someone to be put in that position where they could be accused of, what did you do with this? And so those are just some little practical things about finances that exist within the church. And of course, it looks different now than it did then. As our church, we have, we have buildings and we have staffing and we have you know, power bills and all these things. So it does look different than it did back then, but we're trying to be consistent in the model with what the early church put forward of being responsible with the collections of our finances. In the next few verses, Paul says a couple of interesting things here. He says, I'm going I'm to come to visit you at some point, and I would even like to spend the winter with you. And then he says, I, I don't really want to just come now and, and see you in passing. And perhaps you can kind of understand this as someone you haven't seen in a long time that you care deeply for and you have a great relationship with. It's not very easy to just stop in for 20 minutes to say hi and keep going on your way. Is you would rather come and sit down and actually spend time with and, and hear from and ask, how, you know, how is your family doing and how is your spiritual walk and how is the church? And, and Paul was desperate to have long conversation with the Corinthians. So he doesn't just want to pass. But notice this, and this is verse 7. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. So notice two things here. Paul is making plans. I'm going to go through Macedonia, and we actually see that later on, while the missionary journey doesn't go exactly as he's planned, he kind of follows that pattern. Here's what I'm going to plan to do. Here's what I want to do, and I'm going to come to visit you. But it's if the Lord wills. So yes, go and make plans. Be wise with the decisions that you're going to make. Ask God what, what he, you think he's calling you to do and where he's calling you to go. But also recognize that just because you have made plans and you think that they're from him, recognize that he is still in control and he may move your plans. There's a proverb 16 verse 9, and we quote this often, but it says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So yes, make plans, but hold them with an open hand, recognizing that God may call you to something different. Someone who has imprinted this on me in my life, and, and most of you know him, uh, is Jim Houston. I have, have been given the responsibility of, of gathering the local Southern Alberta AGC pastors together from time to time, and so I'm in contact with them uh, just to encourage them and talk to them. And, and whenever we have a meeting coming up, or I, I email Jim for some other reason or something, he always ends everything with this line. And I don't think it's this tag where he just throws it in, but something that he has learned over his life. 
And so I'll send an email and say something like, Jim, I can't wait. We'll see you on Friday uh, morning at our pastor's cafe. And he'll respond and he'll say something like, I'm looking forward to visiting with you all as well. I will see you on Friday if the Lord wills. And I don't know if that's, I can't remember if this is something that Jim has learned years and years ago and instilled in his life, or if perhaps when, when he got his cancer diagnosis and started journeying through that, if he recognized his own inabilities more and God's plans more. I'm not sure. But what I know is every time I talk with Jim, I'm struck by this notion that he has plans, but he recognizes that God has ultimate control and authority. And how important is that for us? When I was in Mexico um, on a mission trip, we were talking with this little boy and he couldn't have been more than eight years old. And this is how he spoke. We said, hey, what are you going to do tomorrow after we were finished up for the day? And he said, if the Lord is willing, I'm going to come and I'm going to help you again tomorrow. Little eight-year-old boy pouring concrete dust as we're mixing concrete on the ground. If it's the Lord's will, he says. May that be the way in which we look at things. Yes, we have plans to do, but also that God is fully in control. Verse 8, he says, I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective ministry is open to me. Now, here's a couple of things. He wants to go to the Corinthians. He longs to go see them, and he's making plans to do that, but he sees that God has a different objective in front of him right now. And so, may we step back, and may we not be so eager to just accomplish the things that we have in mind, but would we have eyes to see, God, what are you doing in my life? Who are you placing in front of me? What situations exist that you want me to work in? Help me to not only look at my interests, but to what you are calling me to do. Paul saw that even though he wanted to go to Corinth, even though he wanted to be with them, that God was opening doors for him for effective ministry. And for Paul, that was far more important than anything else. That he would do the Lord's will. But there's this little tag at the end of this verse that really, really impacted me this week. It says this, A wide door for effective work has opened to me, there's a comma, and there are many adversaries. To me, it seems like that would be a reason to go to Corinth, doesn't it? Right? Like that's kind of how I think sometimes is is I look at it and I go, okay, God, if you want me to be here, you're going to make it all work. But if I see obstacles and opposition and difficulties in the way, so often I'm like, well, I guess God wants me to do something else. That's not really what scripture teaches us though. Paul recognizes there's an effective, there's a door open to me for effective ministry and there are many trying to sabotage it. There are many trying to not allow me or the work of the gospel to to be happening. And so instead of packing it up and going, I guess the door's closed, he says, no, I'm going to dig my heels in and I'm going to help. And I'm going to minister. I'm going to care for. I'm going to share the gospel. And and we know from Paul's life that that's not only just his talk speaking as he was in prison over and over and over. And he was attacked and beaten and hurt and all those things we've seen Uh, throughout the New Testament that Paul goes through some very, very difficult scenarios, but he sees it and he goes, there's opposition, there's challenge. I want to stay because I need to help. May that be our attitude. Not that we would run at the first sign of opposition. Not that we would try and read into the situation and go, well, clearly God doesn't want me here because things aren't working the way that I would expect. Simply going, God, is there opposition happening here? How do you want me to combat that? 
How do you want me to be part of the answer? How do you want me to minister to those that I am in contact with regardless of how easy or how difficult it is? That little verse, that little tag at the end of that verse just really, really struck me this week. Are things hard? Are you seeing little progress in a relationship as you are trying to disciple someone? And are you tempted to go, I'm I'm, I'm done. I'm going to move on to something else. Don't be discouraged and don't give up. See opposition as exactly that, a fight against what you are trying to accomplish in the name of Jesus. And so don't give up. Continue in the work of the ministry that God has called you to do. And we'll skip ahead uh, to verse 12. And there's two things in this little section that I want to focus on. And one of them might seem really, really small, but I think Paul's being very intentional as he talks about this. He says, now concerning our brother Apollos, and if you remember back to the beginning of Corinthians, is Paul was focusing on the idea of unity within the church because people had kind of separated based on teachers. Some were saying, well, we follow Paul because he planted the church and he's right. And some were saying, well, we follow Apollos because he came later and he actually was very eloquent and and a beautiful teacher. He was able to teach us wonderful, wonderful things. And so we want to follow him. And and Paul threw out a few chapters at the beginning of this letter. That's basically my paraphrase. He said, that's dumb. Like, don't just pick a teacher and follow them. Follow the Lord Jesus. And it doesn't matter who is preaching. If it is true, then it is true and follow what is true. Don't pick sides. Don't divide yourselves. You are one body. You are one church. So would you worship together? And so he's been dealing with that. And so he says this now, concerning Apollos, I strongly urge him to visit with you, with the other brothers. So he said to Apollos, look, there's division. There's disunity. I'm going to write a letter. I'm going to tell people not to do that. Would you go and do the same? What's Paul doing? He's trying to unite them by showing that neither of those teachers would ever want them to do that. Apollos, would you go and would you speak with the Corinthians? I think it would probably be easier for Paul to just ignore Apollos from that point on in the letter. I've corrected it. I've dealt with it. There's no point in mixing it up again. There's no point in bringing Apollos back into it, especially considering Apollos isn't coming because he he says he's not going to yet. But what I think Paul's doing is he's trying to say, look, not only am I telling you to be united, but we are trying to be united, me and Apollos, and he is going to come with you and he's going to say the same thing that I said, that we would worship the Lord Jesus and not pick sides. In the text when it says, Uh, but it was not at all his will to come now. In the Greek, it's not clear whether that's Apollos' will or if that's God's will. So it's not as though Paul's saying that, Apollos, you should go. I have authority over you, but you do not want to. Paul's just urging this unity, and he says, Apollos, I I want you to go. And just as he says, I want to come to you, but an effective uh, door for ministry has opened to me, Apollos is in the same position. So Apollos will come. And he will share and he will go through the exact same explanation that Paul did because their focus is not on who is the greatest teacher. Their focus is on the worship of the Lord Jesus, that the church would unite together. Second thing here is verse 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you be 
Let all that you do be done in love. This is my exact prayer for us as a church. Sometimes we use this verse only when we're in uh, men's group, right? Because it says act like men. And so we're like, oh, that's really perfect for men's group. But the actual uh, Greek expression here is basically this, be strong and be courageous and step up. That's really how it could be translated. So don't step out of that and think this doesn't apply to you or that Paul is saying something that he isn't. He's calling on them. And so I would say this to you as well. Be watchful. Be aware of what's happening in your life. There is a spiritual battle at place and Satan does not want you to grow in your knowledge and in your love of the Lord Jesus. Be aware of that. Watch when those oppositions come that you might be driven further into the word of God, that you might trust in him more despite the circumstances that are around you. But you have to watch. We talked about this a number of months ago, but in Peter, Peter talks about it this way, and he says that Satan is prowling around you like a, like a roaring lion ready to devour you. And so he says, so be on watch. And I used this example before, but when you get out of your, when you leave your door in the morning, is if you're not prepared for what's coming that day, and you won't know everything that's coming. But if you haven't taken the time to prepare yourself, Lord, would you give me strength for today? Would you give me eyes to see what needs to happen today? Would you give me an understanding that those that I get to interact with, it's an opportunity to share your love. If we don't prepare ourselves, if we're not watchful for those things, we won't see them. And we'll just walk out our door and we'll just go on with our life and we'll just accomplish the things that we've set out on our to-do list and we'll get no further. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith as you know this and I, and I want to remind us of this is the world has nothing to offer us that is better than Jesus Christ. Salvation is the greatest gift that exists in a life following Jesus though not easy and filled with all kinds of challenges is immensely of greater worth than anything the world has to offer us. So stand firm in that. And when you go through crisis and you go through uncertainty and challenge, perhaps death, perhaps illness, perhaps sickness, I'm not saying everything will just be fine. Because I don't know what the situation will hold. What I am saying is stand firm in your faith because nothing can rip you out of Jesus' hand. So stand firm. Be strong and be courageous. This reminded me back to the book of Joshua. And if you've gone through the book of Joshua before, it's really interesting. Uh, Historians think that Joshua was perhaps the greatest military leader to ever exist. And yet, in the beginning of Joshua, over and over and over and over, what does God say to him? Be strong and courageous. Be very strong. Be very courageous. Over and over in the beginning of that, if the greatest military leader ever in the history of the world needed to be reminded to be courageous and to be strong, how much more do I need to hear that? Be strong. Be courageous. And lastly, let all that you do be done in love. This is key. We talked about this at length in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, but this is so important for us to realize is your motivation for how you treat others, for how you talk to others is meant to be completely different than the world. It's meant to be because the Father loves you and he wants you to love others. So when you correct someone, when you encourage someone, when you come alongside to try and help, whatever it is, may love be the motivating factor. And they will see that. 
and then we'll go, I need that. The problem is, is by nature, we're pretty selfish people. And sometimes even we'll try and, we'll try and help people, but we'll only try and help them because we want to prove to them that we're right and they're wrong. And if they did it our way, it would work better. That's not love. That's arrogance. That's the opposite of that. Even if we're right, it's still arrogance. May we love each other effectively. May we show that the way that I want to treat you, the way that I want to talk to you, the way that I want to interact with you is motivated not on me, but on the Father and his love for me. Jesus wrote this, or said this in John 15, chapter 15, verse 13. He says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Would you love one another sacrificially so that not your motivation, not your desires, not your whatever it might be is important, but that you love them sacrificially, that you lift them up, that their needs become more important than your own. That is what Jesus calls us to do. That's what Paul's saying here. And then in the very last couple of sentences, just a couple of things he says is, is one I want to deal with here. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. I told Caleb I was going to invite him up and we were going to demonstrate that, but I'm just joking. That's, uh, that's a little awkward maybe. But I do have a hilarious story to tell to illustrate this point. When I was uh, in Greece on a missions trip, there were many different cultures all gathered together. And so those of you who live in Banff, many cultures live here, and perhaps you've had a, an awkward moment like this. Well, uh, some of our group were small-town prairie people and had never really left small-town prairie Canada. And so all of a sudden you're in Greece with all these different cultures, and, and people do things very differently in all different parts of the world. And so one of the things that was common in Greece was, was the, the two-cheek-sided kiss thing, right? super comfortable for those of us who are small town people, right? Like some people handshaking is too much, right? Like that's my personal space. Now all of a sudden face to face, really uncomfortable. So they were teaching us, here's how to do it. Like here's the proper way so that you don't offend anybody unnecessarily, but that you also like get a little bit more comfortable with it because this is just what every old lady in the street that we were in in Greece did to us. And you just had to make your peace with this. Well, this one, uh, this one lady in our team, uh, wonderful lady, but, but a, little bit, uh, a little bit uncomfortable with this, we'll say. So the first opportunity she gets to practice is she walks up to somebody, he leans in, so she's like, okay, I got this. We're going to do this right. But she leaned the wrong way, and it was just mouth to mouth. And the poor girl just about died, and the rest of us just about died laughing. And it was just like, okay, there was, there was no way to beat that, so it was not as uncomfortable anymore for us. Anyway, I just, the point that Paul's making here is not that this is the normal way that Christians are supposed to interact. He's trying to talk about unity. He's trying to talk about that you would have affection towards one another and that you would greet one another. And that looks different in every culture. And so when you see the little kiss thing, may you remember that that is about unity. When you see handshakes, when you see hugs, when you see any of those things, know that all of that is meant to be the sense of when you walk through the church door that you are loved and that you are cared for. And that you are called into relationship. One of the things that Paul wants to deal with most in many of his letters is this idea of segregation. We call it cliques that exist. 
well, there's this group of people and they're over here and there's this group of people and they're over there. And while they worship together, they don't really, they're not really friends. They're not really uh, family. They're just, you know, they're just separated from that. And Paul says that should never be the case in the church of Christ. Yes, you can have friends that you like more than some other people. But if you treat anybody poorly, if you ignore anybody who is part of your family of faith, if you don't treat them as the family of God that they are, and Paul says you're missing the point. And so when you read a word that says, greet one another with a holy kiss, remember what Paul's talking about here is that you would be including each and every person so that they know that they're loved and they're cared for. Because there's nothing worse then when you're hurting and you're uncertain and you're not sure what to do and you come into a place like the church where you want to be fed and you want to be ministered to and if you feel like you're on the outside, there's, there's fewer things that are worse than that. And so may we not be those kind of people. Would we be people that include one another? That we love one another? Paul says at the end here, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. That sounds really aggressive right at the end of the letter. Based on the context of everything he's saying, I think it's pretty simple, actually. I think he's just saying this. You cannot love one another effectively if you don't love Jesus. And so make sure that your love for Jesus is the most important thing. And if you're sneaking into the church to cause division, which he's said a few people have throughout the book of Corinthians, If you don't love Jesus, then you are not part of this family. And I don't think he's just trying to be confrontational attacking. I think he's trying to warn, to say, if you don't love Jesus, you don't have any hope. So know who Jesus is. And then as we love the Lord, then we can love one another effectively. And he finishes with, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. While much of what Paul has written has been direct, some of it has been harsh, some of it has been correcting some really wrong thinking, what we see is that he loves the church. He wouldn't have spent all this time writing these things if he didn't genuinely care for those people and want them to change into Christ-likeness. Otherwise, he just would have been like, who cares? I did my part, planted the church. It's not up to me. I'm moving on. How easy it is for us to sometimes wash our hands of things. When relationships get hard, when they get messy, when we see massive theological problems, when we see people making horrible decisions, it can be much easier to just step out of the way and just say, that's their life, that's their issue. Paul loved them and wanted to help them, and it sometimes meant calling them on some pretty aggressive and difficult sayings, different things. May love be our motivating factor for everything. He said it once. I want to repeat verse 14 again as we finish. Let all that you do be done in love. Let's pray. God, thank you for this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Thank you for the truth that is in it and and the relevance that we find in our own time and our own age. God, as we've discussed all of these things and as we've concluded them all today, may our love for you radiate out of us and be the motivating factor for how we treat one another. Would we love people intentionally? 
And would we love them effectively so that we're willing to get into the mess of life sometimes? That we wouldn't just step back when a difficulty arises, but that we would enter into that. Not with an arrogance to correct because my way is right and their way is wrong. But with a humble spirit knowing that you have called us to become more like Jesus every day. And so would you help us to sharpen one another, to encourage one another, and to help us grow, that we would become more like Jesus. God, would we stand firm? Would we be watchful? Would we be strong and courageous? And would we let love be the motivating factor behind how we do all of those things? God, thank you for who you are, for what you have done. Thank you for this church, for those who call it their home. God, would you be at work in the lives of each one who has come here this morning. Go with us today. We love you. Amen.